0: Hey, guys, and welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, I have a very special guest on. Her name is Dr. Rachel Zofness. Dr. Rachel Zofness is a leading global pain expert, pain psychologist, and an assistant clinical professor at the UCSF School of Medicine, where she teaches a pain education course for medical residents. She serves as pain education faculty at Dartmouth and completed a visiting professorship at Stanford University. Dr. Zafnus is the author of the Pain Management Workbook, a highly accessible, easy-to-use guide for healthcare providers and adults living with chronic pain. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: You know, it's funny. No matter how many times people read my bio, I never get used to it. You know, I am always I always like sit here feeling like embarrassed for some reason.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, it's super impressive, man. Like you've done a lot of stuff in your lifetime. And it's like, yeah, you kind of read it and you're like, holy shit, how old are you again?
1: Yeah. 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 It's funny. I hear it and I just sort of feel like I want to hide under a rock, but thank you. (laughs)
0: You're very welcome. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote from something you wrote in a Psych Today article, and then we're going to just get going. Okay. So Rachel wrote, pain is never purely biological, due exclusively to issues like tissue damage and anatomical dysfunction. It is also emotional, social, and cognitive, constantly influenced by thoughts, perceptions, emotions, and context." Okay, so where did the medical community essentially get this wrong, right? Because, you know, when I was a kid, and I guess even to some extent now, whenever I go to the doctor, like I have stomach pains, uh, let's say, you know, a headache or whatever, you know, they'll constantly and consistently diagnose something physical, or at least inquire into, you know, the physical components of it. So like, there was a moment where I remember I had to go see uh, an allergist because I felt like my allergies were acting up and I was having like vertigo. And I came to him and I said, hey, you know, like my head has been spinning for a while. And he said, ah, you know, it could be a brain tumor. Let's get you an an mri right yeah yeah the first thing he says let's get you an mri and i'm like okay can we like relax a minute and can you like at least do a thorough assessment and let's figure out what the likelihood of that is before sending me from a, to an mri so how does this happen why do medical professionals solely focus on the biology as opposed to the other aspects
1: i have so many responses to the story <laughs> you just told me like thing number one psychologists and people who work in healthcare have all all heard of placebo right like we've all heard of the placebo effect right placebo effect is like words that someone uses or like a pill that you take that makes you feel better even though it supposedly doesn't have any sort of like medical or like biomedical component there's also something called a nocebo a nocebo is the opposite a nocebo is like you know, a totally neutral pill or words that you use that can make someone feel worse. So when someone has a headache and you go see a doctor and they're like, yeah, it's probably a tumor. Like actually what, what science tells us is that words like that are going to make pain feel worse. So, so to answer the question you actually asked me, (laughs) 96% of medical schools in the United States and Canada have zero, zero dedicated compulsory pain education like zero. So where did we get it wrong? If you're asking me, it's our educational system. Like we do not prioritize educating healthcare providers in pain, not in medicine, not in psychology. Like we don't teach pain at all in most psychological programs, because in Western medicine, we have this concept, like either your pain is physical and you see a physician or your pain is emotional and you see a psychologist, but that's not how pain works at all. Like pain neuroscience tells us that emotions influence pain and thoughts affect pain 100% of the time. So where we get it wrong, I think is like starting at the most basic is like the educational process. So if physicians aren't being trained in pain, how in the hell are patients like you and me supposed to understand pain, right?
0: Right. And you know, what's interesting is like thinking about it and I even can imagine going to a psychologist and thinking, you know, like, Hey, we're telling the person, Hey, you know, I've been struggling like with these stomach aches again, maybe, you know, headaches or whatever. And that person sending me in turn back to that doctor and saying like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not a doctor, right? What can I tell you? Like, this is physical. Like if you, you know, I can help you with potential, you know, with stress, depression, anger problems, whatever it is, but I'm not really sure what to do here. So like, how does that happen? Right. Because you can end up in this feedback loop where the doctor sends you to a therapist and then the therapist says, well, I don't know. You should go back to the doctor
1: you're like literally telling the story of my life mm-hmm. so first of all so i was a kid with chronic stomach aches just full transparency and it was anxiety like i was a socially anxious kid i was a library mouse i spent all of my time reading books books were my friends i was like shy and introverted and scared of everybody um and i had chronic stomach aches and at no point literally until my 20s at no point did anyone say hey, did you know that stress and anxiety are somatic? By that I mean they live in the body. Like emotions don't just live in your head, they live in your body also, right? And so, you know, we've all heard of serotonin, which is that chemical that regulates mood. I I think I was like probably 30 when I learned that 90% of the body's serotonin, do you wanna know where it lives? 90% of the body's serotonin, you know where it is?
0: Can I guess in the gut?
1: It's not in your brain, that's right, Mm -hmm. in your gut. 90%, like, you know, we take SSRIs, like candy, like, you know, antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds. It's like, when you have a gut instinct, it's because 90% of your serotonin, like your emotion center, in addition to your brain, is also your gut. So, like we, for some reason, medicine gets it wrong. Like, I see all of these kids, in particular, that breaks my heart, who have been down the rabbit hole with procedures and scopes. You know, they've been anesthetized and, and like, you know, it's great that we're ruling out the scary stuff. It's great that we're, we should always rule out brain tumors. We should always rule out Crohn's disease. You know, like, I'm not saying we shouldn't also rule stuff out, but I remember when I was an undergrad, I had an advisor who said, when you, I mean, this is, he didn't make this up. It's like something like, when you hear hoofbeats, mm-hmm. think horses and not zebras, right? And like, I used to not know what that meant. What oh. it means is when you see a symptom or you hear, hoofbeats, you want to think of the thing that's more common. Like if you're here in America, chances are high if you hear hoofbeats. It's a horse, it's not a zebra. Chances are high when you get a patient who has a stomach ache or a headache, like the chances of it being a brain tumor are pretty low. The chances of it being secondary to stress and anxiety, given the culture that we live in, like during a pandemic, during this like, epidemic of racism and like all the things that are happening, climate change and wildfires and flooding, Like chances are high, it's probably stress or anxiety. But for some reason in healthcare, we don't talk to our patients about this brain-body connection, even though it's clearly a thing. Like There's no way around it. If serotonin, 90% of your serotonin is in your gut, and we're treating stress and anxiety and depression with serotonin medications let's talk about the role of stomach aches and stress and anxiety and depression and headaches and and the other things that happen to your body too. But we separate it out in Western medicine in this way that like boggles my mind.
0: Yeah. So can you take us through your journey? How'd you end up figuring this out? Like, when did you finally have that aha moment where you're like, okay, yeah, maybe my stomach pains aren't purely physical.
1: You mean, like, how did I get to where I am professionally or personally with the stomach stuff?
0: Well, technically, both, right? Because I'm assuming the personal is connected to the professional. Because I'm assuming, in some way, you were on your own healing journey before you decided, oh, I'm going to do this for a living.
1: Um, there are two separate stories, and I'm happy to tell both. The stomach stuff, I just went down the rabbit hole because I'm a nerd and I love biology. Like, my major in college was brain and behavior, human biology, and I just wanted to know everything. So I uncovered th- this serotonin It's called the enteric nervous system. The enteric nervous system is this brain gut connection. And I discovered it on my own just by doing research at no point did any GI doctor or any primary care physician ever tell me about the enteric nervous system. So that was just like nerdy reading. And now I'm obsessed with it. And I go around talking about it all the time because stomach aches are so ubiquitous, but, but the professional thing, like I always wanted to live at the intersection of medicine and psychology and neuroscience and, um, and education and science writing and like essentially helping people. And I wanted to do it in all these different ways. And I couldn't figure out how to like make all those things live together. So undergrad, I studied biology and neuroscience and psychology. And luckily there was a major at Brown that allowed me to do that. It's called brain and behavior, human biology. It's great. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: then I like, couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. So I taught science at the Bronx Zoo with these like nerdy eight to 12 year olds. It was the greatest job I ever had. I wrote for articles for a science magazine. It was a natural history magazine in New York City. It was so cool, mm-hmm. but, but nothing was really like, nothing really like hit it, hit it, you know? So I started doing research at the NYU Child Study Center and I got a master's degree in clinical psychology, but I still wasn't really, you know, and I had studied pain actually, as an undergrad, that was my honors thesis. I was so fascinated by pain because it seemed to be this thing that lived at the intersection of biology and medicine and neuroscience and psychology, you know, and it, I was so fascinated by it. So I did circle back around to it finally after I got my PhD in clinical psychology, where I got zero training in pain.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I, during my postdoc, I just really went down this rabbit hole. Like I did this training in mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, which is a non-pharmacological evidence-based treatment for chronic pain. And I was like, how does this work? Like it's helping all these people living with pain. How is that even possible? Um, So I I studied the neuroscience of it. And then I just like, you know, dedicated my whole life to it. Um, And I started going around, um, like to pain conferences and taking all these pain workshops. And I emailed the people who were doing the research mm-hmm. on cognitive behavioral therapy for pain. And I was like, I asked them like, are you using a manual? Like what treatment guide? And a couple of people, they just sent me the manual they were using in their studies. Cause you know, studies are for public consumption. And most of these researchers want people like you and me to be delivering this to people in the universe, especially if it's effective.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I started using the manuals with some of my patients. And then then I I was so fascinated by it that I started giving talks at UCSF on how CBT works for chronic pain. And they were so delighted to have someone to send their patients to, especially the ones that weren't responding to medications, that they just started sending me all their patients with chronic pain. And listen, like I am not a miracle worker. Like I'm just doing what I've been taught, but like the patients I was seeing were getting better. And I was seeing these like, intractable pain patients who had been on 40 medications and had been in bed for four years and they were getting out of bed and going back to life. And their physicians at UCSF were calling me and they were like, what magic purple pill are you giving them? And Mm -hmm. like, you know, and my whole thing was like, yeah, that's the whole point. I'm not giving them any pills. Like actually I'm doing this cognitive behavioral therapy thing and they're getting their lives back and they're going back to, you know, going back to school and going back to work and going back to their hobbies and Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I and then I became an addict. Like when my patients started getting better, especially the teenagers, because I happen to have a soft spot for teenagers, Mm -hmm. like watching those kids get out of bed and back to life is magic. And I just never wanted to do anything else.
0: Yeah. I love that. So how should we understand pain? Right. Because the way, let's say that I would think about it is, you know, you feel pain, right? There's some tissue damage. All of a sudden there's a nerve signal being sent up to your brain. Your brain interprets that as pain. Right. And then essentially you're like, oh, ow. Right. (laughs) It hurts. So where where are we kind of, what are we missing here? Right. Because it seems really simple and straightforward yet you're saying it's more complicated than that.
1: Pain is super complicated. So I'll give you the nerdy neuroscience and you can decide for yourself. Ready? So- it's really easy to believe that pain lives exclusively in the body. Like if your back hurts, it's easy to believe that the pain lives exclusively in the back. But we know from neuroscience research that that's not actually true. And one of the reasons we know this is because of this syndrome called phantom limb pain. And phantom limb pain is when you lose a limb, like an arm or a leg, and you continue to have terrible pain in the missing body part. So if you can have pain in an arm that isn't there, that tells us definitively that pain is not constructed by the body, right? Of course, there's this brain-body connection and the body's always talking to the brain and vice versa. But if you can have terrible arm pain in an arm that's not there, your pain must be constructed somewhere else. And that somewhere else, science tells us, is the brain. So there's lots of parts of the brain that produce the experience we call pain. There's like a dozen parts of the brain that are involved in this process. But There's three in particular that I find most useful when I'm teaching this concept of how pain works. Mm -hmm. So your prefrontal cortex is implicated in pain processing. So that's the part of your brain responsible for attentional processes and executive functioning and your cerebral cortex, the part of your brain responsible for thoughts and your limbic system, which is your brain's emotion center Mm -hmm. also is implicated in pain processing 100% of the time. So literally what that means is Pain is always, always 100% of the time, both physical and emotional. 100% of the sensory signals from your body filter through your brain's limbic system before they become the thing you call pain. So, when we talk about pain as this purely physical problem and we go after it using pills and procedures that are just targeting your leg or your back, ultimately it's not going to work. I mean, for an acute pain process, so acute pain. Mm-hmm. is pain that's three months or less. So that's like a broken ankle or like the pain of childbirth, you know, something short term. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, we can target that with like laying in bed for, you know, however many weeks with a cast on your leg. But for something like chronic pain, we have to also target the brain in addition to the body because otherwise pain is never going to heal.
0: Mm. So and what's the connection then when it travels up the limbic system? What sort of emotions are that connected to pain?
1: The answer is all of them. Mm -hmm. All of them. So what research shows is that positive emotions, so like when you're feeling happy and joyful, um, and things like safety. So when you feel safe and your body is calm and your thoughts are relaxed, Mm -hmm. your brain will turn down pain volume. So pain will feel less bad when emotions are positive, like you're happy or joyful, or when you're feeling safe and calm and relaxed. Mm -hmm. And the opposite is also true. Neuroscience tells us that when you're feeling stressed and tense or you think you're in danger and your danger, your fight or flight system is activated, pain will be amplified. And when emotions are negative, if you're like depressed and miserable or angry and frustrated, your brain will also amplify pain because at the end of the day, negative emotions you often experience when you're in a state of distress and you're not safe.
0: Right.
1: So, so if pain is your body's warning system and that's really all it is, Your brain is going to incorporate all of the emotional information too, because if you're feeling not safe, your brain is going to amplify the danger messages and that's going to amplify, amplify pain. Does that make sense the way I said that?
0: Yeah, it just, it seems so counterintuitive because if you think about it, right, again, going back to that kind of first model, that medical model, where the idea is like there's tissue damage and your body's warning you about something, let's say horrific about to happen, right? Let's say maybe you're going to bleed out or whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, obviously just being, having a kind of open wound itself, it could get infected, right? So I guess I'm wondering, how does that work, right? Why is the emotional system even technically attached to this? Because if pain is just a signal, right, how is it possible that either the brain can detect pain when there isn't any pain or it cannot detect pain when there Act, I'm sorry. Can detect uh, damage rather when there isn't any damage, right? And can't detect damage when there is damage. Will you say that again, but differently? Right. Yeah. So, how is it that it's in some cases that essentially the brain is able to detect, or I'm sorry, is is not able to detect damage, right? Tissue damage when there is damage. And then it does, in some sense, right? Detect tissue damage when there isn't damage, meaning that it sort of feels pain and tells itself the story like, oh, I'm in pain, here's why, right? And, you know, I'm maybe upset about it or angry, scared, whatever, right? I guess it just, it seems so counterintuitive because you would think it's just kind of this A to B connection where I'm in pain or in danger, right? And then my body and brain detect it and therefore I do something about it.
1: Okay. So, to answer your question, there's a couple ways I could answer it. So, I'm gonna zoom out and just say, I'm gonna use a big word. Ready? Mm-hmm. Um, there's this fallacy that pain is this purely biomedical process. And by that, I mean, again, it's like just to do with damage to the body. But what we know is that pain is not a biomedical process, it's actually this thing that we call biopsychosocial. Mm-hmm. And literally, what that means is yes, there's biological components to pain, like tissue damage and system dysfunction but that's only one third of the pain problem, like the biomedical. There's also the psychological domain of pain and there's the social or the sociological domain of pain. So the way I visualize it is like these three overlapping bubbles in this Venn diagram and pain lives in the middle of those three things. And so you sort of need all of those things to produce this thing that we call pain because the bio alone is not sufficient. So, and I'll, I'll tell you why, but In the psychological domain of pain, you have things like thoughts and beliefs. And what neuroscience shows us is that your thoughts affect your body 100% of the time. And if you've ever had stress or anxiety, you know that the things you think affect the way your body feels. If you start thinking panicky thoughts, you're going to have sweaty palms and a racing heartbeat. And maybe a stomach ache, and maybe a headache, but your body is going to respond to the things in your head. So your thoughts are always affecting the pain you feel. And also in the psychological bubble are emotions, which we just talked about, and coping behaviors too. So how you're dealing with your pain affects the pain you feel. So people who are in bed for months and years feel worse and have more pain than people who are engaged in activities and seeing friends and and doing things and are engaged in their lives. So the psychological bubble contains a lot of stuff. And the social or the sociological bubble is like everything else. So race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status and your social support network, whether you have friends and family or you're isolated, um, it includes like, context and environment. So the things that are going on around you. So the thing that's important to know is that your brain is constantly taking into account all of those things all of the time, because if you think about it, danger detection, isn't just a sensation. It isn't just like a nail in your foot. It's also like what's happening around you. So here's a good story. Um, If you're walking down the street and you feel a scratch on your ankle, Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself. So say you're walking down the street with your family, and like there's recently been a storm, and there's like branches everywhere. And you think to yourself, like, oh, you know, that's just a branch from a, you know, it's just a scratch. Your pain will not be bad. The context of that is your your brain is like, oh, that's no big deal. If you're walking along in um uh, Australia in the outback, and you feel that exact same sensation on your ankle, and you think to yourself especially if you've been told at the beginning of the hike that there's like deadly brown death adder snakes, you know, in the immediate environment. And you think to yourself, oh shit, I've just been bitten by a snake. Your brain is going to produce an insane amount of pain to protect you because your, your thoughts and your emotions and the context in the environment are always part of this, this pain process. Like your brain uses all available information to decide whether or not to make pain and also, how much pain?
0: Wow, Does that's so thin? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. So you know how um, because I guess we experience pain at different levels or in different degrees, you know, based on different circumstances. Yes. So, yeah. So you you know how like when uh, somebody says they're in pain because of let's say X, right? Something happened to them. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it, there was a spider bite or whatever. You know, you could kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah the other person says like, oh, like you're being, you're being like a sissy. Like, what are you doing? Like, that's not painful. I've been bitten by a spider before. Like, who cares? Like, like man up or something. Right. So how do we then know that in terms of like what the neuroscience shows us, shows us, how do we know then that like, we actually legitimately experience pain differently, right? That it's not that one person is like lying or trying to garner attention that no, they're legitimately experiencing pain in a different way than that other person.
1: Yeah. So I get emails a lot and I hope this isn't too awkward to say on air, but like I get emails from people who say things like, I enjoy pain during sex. Like I'm into BDSM or whatever. I think I got that right. Like, Mm -hmm. is there something wrong with me? And the answer is absolutely not. Like totally not. It's just, again, context matters. Like, so if you were just, for example, like say you enjoy getting slapped during sex or bitten or whatever, if that same thing happened while you were being mugged, you bet your ass it would feel completely different because context matters. It would hurt more in the context of like non-consensual getting mugged and having your wallet taken and being beat up than like in bed with a partner you like and trust. So, so the the sensation you feel and the way your brain interprets it, it is always related to context and environment and the thoughts you're thinking and the emotions you're feeling. Like if you're feeling trusting and loving versus terrified, you know, the, the way your brain interprets that is going to be completely different. So like you said, this, like the same exact broken ankle is going to feel different for you than it is for me. And it will feel different for me if you put me in 10 different environments. So it's always subjective. It's always changing. So fascinating to me.
0: Yeah. And is it because like, let's say if you're having sex and like, let's say it's rough sex, is it because there's also like some degree of oxytocin and dopamine release? Is that it? Would that, is that why it modulates yeah. the pain of-
1: Right. So remember how we said that pain lives in the middle of the bio, the psych, and the social. So that would be the bio. Yeah, like the chemicals in your brain. It's the same like if you experience, if you have a chronic pain condition, but you're out with your friends engaged in some pleasurable activity, that also is going to dampen pain volume and turn down the pain, pain dial, right? So this, the situation. the chemicals matter, the situation matters, you know, it, it, all, it all matters.
0: Yeah. So I want to read another quote that's related to this obviously and then kind of get your feedback on it. So you wrote one reason we find ourselves in this pickle is that pain has historically been framed as a quote-unquote biomedical problem, due exclusively to biological issues like tissue, tissue damage and anatomical dysfunction. It has therefore been primarily been it has therefore been primarily treated with biomedical solutions like pills and procedures. So right now going into the actual treatment of it, um, what would you say in terms of the actual medical model and then in terms of you know kind of cognitive behavioral treatment, right? So do we move away from pills in terms of chronic pain, or do we kind of use it in terms of, um, let's say, uh, do we take a kind of more holistic approach, right, where we take medication, and then we also take a CBT perspective, and we kind of try to merge the two together, or is it that we would go try CBT first, and then if that doesn't work, then we kind of go and, you know, resort to medication?
1: Okay. You are asking a very complicated and good question. Um, yeah. and, and I'm and sure this
0: answer- is I'm sure that's specific to, like, different ailments, right? So just, yeah. you know,
1: no, for sure. But in general, here's what the research shows. The research shows that a multidisciplinary approach, a biopsychosocial approach to treating pain, shockingly, is the most effective. Why? Because if you're only again, if you're only targeting the bio domain of pain, that's one third of the pain problem. So no one is going to argue that painkillers work for pain. Like we all know that that's true. And is that a sustainable pain management? technique for like many many years no it's not like there's a lot of factors or processes that are maintaining a chronic pain cycle that are not bio so we know that context matters we know that situations matter and relationships matter so if you're in an abusive relationship and you're taking painkillers one of the things that's maintaining your chronic pain cycle by the way is your toxic relationships so 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 you can yes of course you can take pain pills for your entire life However, what research shows is that that is not um, the most effective way for treating pain um, on an ongoing basis, and that you have to target the psychological processes, the sociological factors, and the social factors if you really want to target pain. So, so for short-term pain, of course, yes, like Advil, Tylenol, those are useful. For a more chronic condition, yes, medications can work, but there's a lot of There's a lot of other, it's like very loaded also, because there's people that I work with who have been on opioids for many years. And what research actually shows, believe it or not, is that opioids over time sensitize the brain to pain. And literally what that means is your brain gets more sensitive to the sensory input from your body over time. So you are going to feel worse if you try and go off opioids because your brain is now more sensitive. So it's really awful what we're doing to people living with pain because- we're sort of like setting them up for disaster if we ever then expect them to like to taper off of it. And there are ethical ways to taper people off of opioids and by the way I'm not like, not anti-opioid. I just I have read research shows it's not sustainable in the long term. So So there are treatments that are like biopsychosocial. So I do cognitive behavioral therapy with my patients and I work with their treatment team, you know, and I work with their physical therapist and I work with their occupational therapist and I refer them to things like biofeedback. I love biofeedback. If you want to talk about biofeedback, let me know. But so there's, there's this multidisciplinary approach that's, really, that's actually the answer to that question.
0: Okay. Wow. Well, I have like a million things I want to say. Um, but the first thing is, I'm sure for you that like the explosion in opioid use in the past decade must have been extra horrifying.
1: Oh, yeah. And let's talk about during COVID. Like there was something like, like a 31% increase in overdoses and deaths, opioid-related deaths during COVID. Like, people were cut off from their social support networks and their treatment teams and their normal pain management strategies. And so they're relying on this medication they've been given by their physicians. But there's also, like, also illicit illicit substance use, too. So it's not just that, but but it's important to talk about it.
0: Right. But in this case, would we mostly chalk it up to, like, poor education in terms of why the doctors are overprescribing?
1: Chalk what up to...
0: Well, the kind of boom in opioid use, right? So outside of the illicit use, like when they're actually getting prescriptions, right? So why, I mean, the central question here is why don't doctors recommend a CBT therapist or a pain specialist? Why do they automatically say, okay, here, you know, here here are pills?
1: Well, if 96% of medical schools don't have pain education and the pain education that does exist is a biomedical approach to pain management, how, how does anybody know? Like, we, aren't, we are not teaching doctors that cognitive behavioral therapy is important. We are not teaching doctors that pain is biopsychosocial. We're not right. teaching doctors that psychosocial approaches actually change the pain you feel because pain is actually located in the brain. It's just, in my opinion, the way we're educating our healthcare providers is actually harming patients.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's something that we started talking about last week. I told you when I was in grad school, one of my first papers was a CBT for somatoform disorders paper. And so for it's just, it's so hard for me to accept that, you know, in America, which seems to be at the cutting edge of mostly everything technological, right? Especially medicine, you would think that like this would have been already a foregone conclusion in most medical schools. So, I mean, I, you may not know the answer to this and obviously that's okay, but how is this possible, right? How is it that we only have a few pain specialists in the country, but yet for the most part, doctors have no idea what's going on? Or whatever at least have a partial understanding
1: yeah no i don't know i i have to be also careful how i talk about it because of course physicians are very smart and they No, been- they are right that that's why it's your-
0: shocking
1: that's why it's yeah. shocking no i know um well i mean the other answer is the thing we need to talk about also is stigma so if we all have this understanding of pain as this biomedical body-based thing people are going to experience an immense amount of stigma when you send them to a psychologist for a physical problem and i hear that all the time like my my pain is real my pain is organic it's not in my head why would my doctor send me to a psychologist for a real problem like people hear you know you're saying i'm faking it or you're saying this is just depression and like no my pain is real so i think that's part of the problem too is you know a lot of healthcare providers don't want patients to feel stigmatized That's part of it because we don't know how to talk about stigma. And I think the answer is just talking about neuroscience. Because as soon as you understand the neuroscience of pain, you're like, oh, I didn't know that. Let me go target the psychosocial stuff so that I can target my pain. But if we're not talking about it that way, then we're not going to target the stigma. And then the other problem is one that you mentioned, which is, or I guess we've both been talking about it. If psychologists are not being trained in pain, who is going to deliver the psychosocial treatments required for pain to get better? Like, It isn't rocket science, by the way. Like when I first went down this rabbit hole of like pain psychology and neuroscience, like anyone who's been trained in psychology, anyone who's been trained in medicine, anyone who's been trained in cognitive behavioral therapy can use these techniques with patients. It's like, honestly, it's available and it's out there. That's actually, I wrote a workbook, the pain management workbook. And the reason I wrote it is because I have this fantasy of every therapist, like people who have not been trained in pain ever picking up this workbook and using it with their patients who have, you know, chronic migraine or fibromyalgia or back pain or whatever, because it is accessible. It is comprehensible. Like if you do not need a PhD in pain psychology, that's not even a thing, or health psychology to deliver it. So I have this fantasy of like, you know, handing distributing this workbook to every therapist in the world and being like, Go use this with your patients. But but psychologists in general and therapists in general are not trained in pain. That's true of social workers and MFTs and and by the way, nurses and physical therapists. I mean
0: so yeah, by the- the reason why I was so interested in having you on the podcast is because literally, I think in all of the years that I've been on social media, Twitter, whatever, and like, you know, the last couple of years that we've been doing podcasts, I've never seen anybody like you, man. Like, I have never seen anybody like you. Like, I've never seen anybody who's a special, like a psychologist, you know, therapist who's a specialist in management, right? I mean, I'm sure they exist. I'm sure they're out there somewhere. But the fact that it's such a rarity, and again, in even just going into podcasts, right? I don't hear much about it. I think there was some specialist who was on Rogan's show, like, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and that was. Is it so for the most part people again just think of like pain as like who cares you know you go to the doctor you get some medication and then you get better so it's just it's so fascinating that in this case you're such a rarity but it's also pretty cool that you're like at the forefront of treatment here
1: yeah there aren't that many psychologists there's a couple and i've had to really like find like ferret them out you know so mm-hmm. division 54 apa division 54 is like people who do pediatric conditions pediatric health and pain and division 38 is like people who do i don't know if there are listeners who are into psychology but the american psychological association has like little pods but but there really just aren't that many out there and it's really a shame and it should not be that way like pain is a ubiquitous human experience and so many people are suffering and we have this chronic pain epidemic it's like a hundred million americans that was pre-pandemic and it's worse now so you know and it's like one in three kids are living with chronic pain so what are we doing you know, it just makes me mad and it really galvanizes me to try and, you know, raise awareness and like change the way that we're treating it and talking about it, you know,
0: yeah. And I can imagine there might be some therapists who are just afraid because, you know, medication is kind of like a magical solution. So it's like, okay, if we're not going that route and if we're essentially using like, you know, talk therapy for it, what am I going to say? How am I going to say pain, pain, go away? What's there to do here, right? So, I mean, obviously based on ignorance, but I get why, you know, the pill would obviously be in, in this case kind of the go-to because it's simple, right? It's the same thing when we talk about just pure, even though it doesn't exist purely, but, you know, let's just say for discussion, uh, pure emotional pain, right? When a person says like, oh, I'd rather just, you know, go to the psychiatrist and and get a you know some sort of pill because it's easier than just going to a therapist having to unpack all of my issues right so it's very similar with pain too because if you think about it most people would probably rather just go get a pill and never have to see the doctor or whatever come up for follow-ups once a month and that way it's like easy now i don't have to figure out what the actual sources are
1: but then they've been in pain for 17 years and the pills haven't been working and you know now you've had pain for 17 years so so yeah you're right um I think treating pain is very intimidating for healthcare providers who aren't physicians. And I will also say it's even intimidating for physicians. Like it's very, treating chronic pain is hard. It doesn't matter your discipline, but but you're right, particularly in therapists. Um, And again, I just want to say like, we all are, we're very ethical people, like people in healthcare, we're very ethical and we all feel like we need to stay in our lanes, you know? But that's why it seems so critical to me to say, if you're a therapist, you're always treating pain. Like, can you think of any sort of mental health condition that doesn't come with pain? Like, depression notoriously comes with unexplained body pain of all kinds. Anxiety chronically comes with headaches and stomach aches. Like, there's no trauma, trauma lives in the body. Like, there's just no condition I can think of that doesn't have accompanying somatic conditions. And the reason for that is because the brain is connected to the body. of the time. The brain is always connected to the body. So like the link for me, for psychologists and therapists is like always talking about neuroscience because it reminds us that we are in our lane. Like when we're talking about physical and somatic symptoms, that is exactly what we're supposed to be treating because it's part of the psychological makeup. It's part of the condition you're treating. Anxiety is somatic. Depression is somatic. Trauma is somatic. You know, there's this great book the body keeps the score. It's like about how trauma lives in the body. So I talk about that one a lot, but, but for therapists, like, I think we just need to like own and embody that we are always treating pain and just pick up a stupid workbook. Like the pain management workbook is really accessible. It has all the pain science, but there's other ones out there too. Like there, I didn't write the first CBT for pain workbook. There's others. So so that's a resource that it's, it's accessible to us, but I have colleagues all the time that are like, don't send me chronic pain patients because I've not been trained in pain. And I'm like, right, because there isn't any training, you're gonna have to do it yourself.
0: Right, yeah, and so before moving on to treatment, I also want to say how wild it is that there's this inverse correlation where you have on the one hand, right, you're sort of the medication and the opioids, they make you kind of more sensitive to pain, but then on the other hand, there's also a desensitization where you become less susceptible to them.
1: Yeah. Is yeah,
0: wild? It's so, it so wild, man. So it's like, what do we, how, like, I don't get how even, do- so do, I mean, maybe you might not know this, but do Dr.
1: Your think, mic is doing a really weird thing, by the way. Let me turn it on and off.
0: This is where editing goes. It comes in Okay, how is it now? It's better. It was making a weird monster noise. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, so that sometimes happens. Thank you for pointing it out. I was actually on the podcast like a couple of months ago and nobody said anything and then they recorded it like this. I was like, no. Okay, so it's good, right? Yeah. It's better now. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, yeah. So the weird correlation or whatever, you, the awful correlation and strange correlation. Uh, so the awful correlation between opioid use. Yeah. So in terms of like doctors, right, what did they think about it in terms of the long-term, right? Did they just think, oh, you know, hopefully this person will get better and then we could kind of wean them off of it. Or what do they think of in terms of chronic pain and opioid use? Like how is it sustainable?
1: The language I hear a lot from doctors is we just need to break the cycle. Mm-hmm. I hear that a lot. We need to give your body a break and break the cycle, but that's not what opioids do. Opioids don't break a pain cycle. That isn't actually how that works at all. But patients, like patient after patient, will come into my office and say, "Well, my doctor says we need to break the cycle."
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, so that's not what's happening. With yes, we do need to break the cycle, and there's other ways of doing that, but opioids don't do it. Unfortunately, they do provide a lot of relief. No one will deny that opioids. By the way, thank God for opioids for acute pain, like post-surgical pain. Thank God. Um, no one will deny that they work, but for long-term, like multi-months, multi-year, no, 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 no. But that's the language we're using. And, and, you know, we know it's not working and it's actually increasing and not decreasing suffering.
0: Right. And I guess that's where it becomes scary for these physicians where they start thinking like, oh, okay, well, we don't know what to do with this long-term. So, I mean, I guess if they're still, in, you know, if there's chronic pain and if they're still in pain, I guess there's nothing that we could do. We could just throw our hands up and just keep using the medication.
1: Yeah, exactly right.
0: Yeah. Okay, so treatment, right? So what happens when you go see a cognitive therapist and somebody who's a specialist in pain management?
1: So you mean for someone living with pain? Like what kind of stuff do I do, you mean?
0: Yeah, so with somebody living with chronic pain, let's say they've been through maybe I was going to say plethora, but let's say even a few doctors, right? They've been to a few doctors, doctors, I just sent them to a therapist. So they said, Hey, we just don't know. Uh, you know, maybe they've tried opioids before and they wanted to get off of them. So in terms of like the actual CBT approach and looking at it from a bio, you know, cognitive behavioral and, you know, I guess, a, a biopsychosocial perspective, right? How would a therapist treat that person?
1: Um, so the first thing I do in my practice is I ask people, Hey, so you've been in pain for four years. Has anyone ever explained to you how pain works? And they always say, no, no one has ever explained to me how pain works. And once they're righteously indignant about that, Mm -hmm. um, I launch into my explanation. I ask them if they wanna know. And as soon as they're curious about how pain works, like I need to have buy-in, like my therapy, my treatment will not work as long as you believe that your pain is just located in your back and you require like eight more surgeries to fix your back. Like nothing that I do will help you if you don't understand pain. So I ask if you wanna understand pain. So cognitive behavioral therapy for pain is multi-component. So one, like any good therapy, you have to establish a rapport with your patient, with your client. Without rapport, you got nothing. So that's part one. Part two is always pain education. So pain education is what we're doing today. Like how does pain work in the brain? What's, you know, what are the things that change pain? What changes pain volume up and down? We can talk about that. Um, Then there's the behavioral strategies. So the B in CBT is just behaviors. So again, there's a lot of things or behaviors we can engage in that will amplify pain, like not moving and not seeing people and not exercising and just staying sedentary. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of behaviors that can change the pain you feel. So we always talk about mapping out, like what are the things, what's the cycle I'm stuck in? That's not helping my pain and making it worse. And what are changes I can make in my behavior that might make pain better? And there's like a million behavioral strategies. So, so the B and CBT is like pacing for pain and pacing for pain is like returning to life and activities that you love, like tiny, tiny, tiny little bits at a time. So it's like pacing for a marathon. You would not go run 26 miles tomorrow. If you haven't been training, you're just like going to lie face flat on the pavement. And it's the same with pacing for chronic pain. You do not go outside and engage in all of life's activities just because someone told you to. You have to gradually desensitize your brain and get your body prepared or ready for that. So, that's one of the behavioral strategies. We also use like mindfulness based stress reduction, which helps turn off your fight or flight pain alarm. Um, We use distraction strategies to engage your prefrontal cortex. So, there's like a lot of strategies that we use for pain management that hit the B, the behavior. And then we also hit the C in CBT, which is cognitive strategies. So um, how are the things I'm thinking impacting my body? So am I sitting around thinking I'm broken, I'll never get better, nothing's ever gonna help me? Like, what are the thoughts I'm thinking and how is that impacting my body and my health? Mm -hmm. Or am I thinking, you know, um, I've never tried the CBT thing before, I hear that it's helpful for some people, at least I'll try you know, like what are the things you're thinking and are they stopping your, you from trying things to get better or are they, um, galvanizing you to make change and heal? So thoughts affecting. Um, and then the fifth component is like caregiver training or parent training. So there are things that your support network can do to help you get better or parents can do to help children get better. Mm -hmm. And there's things that we can do that actually impair wellness. So, so, so it's multi component And people always ask me, well, you know, how long is this going to take? And the answer is, it depends. Like every single person who walks in my door is different. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like no one answer to that. Um, And the shortest patient, it was like six weeks. And she had like this chronic migraine condition and she couldn't even talk because her pain was so bad. Mm -hmm. And it took six weeks of like training her and training her parents. And the pain broke and she like went back to soccer practice and like, and and so, but some of my patients I've been seeing for a really long time and they have complex trauma, you know, and there's like a lot of stuff going on, and it's you know, and also they like want the support. So so there's really not, there's not one answer, you know. Yeah,
0: you know, and so how is complex trauma involved? How does it kind of fit with the idea that you know there's kind of an emotional and obviously a biological component to pain?
1: Um, so there are these studies called the ACEs studies from 1998. This guy Felitti. I believe he's a he and I'll be very embarrassed if she's a she. Um, It's the Adverse Childhood Experiences studies and they showed unequivocally that early childhood trauma and toxic stress was predictive of chronic pain and chronic illness later in life. Mm -hmm. And there have been like hundreds of studies since then that have confirmed that that's true. And the biology of that is just this. if pain is the body's warning system and it exists to protect you, if you've had an early trauma early in life, your brain knows that the world is not a safe place. And what early trauma does is it makes your brain more sensitive. Your that's literally when we talk about PTSD, hypervigilance is a symptom of trauma, and hypervigilance literally means Your brain is vigilant, it's on alert all the time, and it wants to warn you of potential threat of danger. So your brain is constantly scanning the environment around you, but also your internal environment, your body, to look for any threat of danger. So when your brain is on high alert and it's sensitive, what it means is, your brain is gonna amplify information from the body. So small bits of sensory input to a sensitive brain are amplified, so it sort of it predisposes you for for a chronic pain condition because your brain is now really sensitive. It's hypersensitive, and it's trying to protect you and save your life. But you know the pain system is fallible. Like every system in the human body, and the pain system can fail.
0: Right. So is it then that the anxiety or the fear amplifies whatever symptoms or whatever signals your body is sending to your brain?
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. Stress and anxiety are always gonna amplify danger messages. So the pain you feel is gonna be worse when you're stressed and anxious or traumatized. Always, that's how that goes.
0: Yeah, wow, that's so amazing. And then, so when we think about thoughts, is it the same thing too? So where the connection is between thoughts and emotions and pain, where it's like, let's say, you know, if I'm down on myself and if I feel like a failure, nobody wants to be friends with me. Uh, let's say, you know, maybe my life is going nowhere, right? Then obviously, I automatically likely be depressed. And then the idea is with the depression, that is like in terms of that pain modifier, it uh, sort of turns the dial up, right? So it's like the more depressed you are, the more in pain you are. Whereas, suppose if we were to reframe some of those thoughts, and you felt better about yourself, you had a better outlook about life, then obviously a little bit, you know, you're a little bit more cheery than you would have been otherwise. And then the pain dial goes down. But, right, You got it. That's okay. right. So interesting. Wow. So it's like, you know, you kind of, I guess I'm assuming when you're in, when you're in session with, uh, with patients, right. And you're talking about this, you probably kind of get into the fact that, yeah, a lot of your th- thoughts literally are toxic. Like, it's not just that it's toxic in the sense of it's ruining your life. It's toxic in the sense of it's ruining your body. Well, so if you, I mean, I, I I always think about how to talk about this, right? Because
1: if you think about what a thought is, mm-hmm. it's it is physiological. It's a neurological change in your brain. It's chemicals, and same with emotions. It's like, you know, it's electricity and neurotransmitters, chemical changes in your brain and in your body. It's hormonal changes and and changes in muscle tension and changes in all of your. That's what thoughts and emotions are. They're physiological. So yes, of course, thoughts and emotions by definition have to affect your body again the brain and body are connected 100 percent of the time so the things you think affect the things you feel there's just no way around it there's just no so the reason i love i mentioned biofeedback earlier biofeedback is a treatment for chronic pain that connects the brain to the body and the way it does that is so when i first started treating pain people said you need to send your patients to biofeedback and i said I don't send my patients to anything I don't understand. So I went to a biofeedback provider and he sat me in a chair and he said, I'm gonna teach you to warm your hands to 90 degrees. And I said, I am a scientist and I don't believe in voodoo, but he sat me in this chair and he hooked me up to these machines and the machines were reading my hand temperature and my muscle tension and my heart rate and all these other things that are normally unconscious. But I could see on the screen my temperature, my heart rate, my muscle tension, everything. So he used all of these techniques with me. He had me think relaxing thoughts. He had me, um, he did a guided body scan with me, which is from mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, he used uh, a bunch of um, imagery. So for, he told me that, that he was gonna warm, help me warm my hands to 90 degrees, right? So he had me um, imagining Uh, my hands over a campfire and like warm fluid running down my arms and into my hands, which totally sounds crazy, Mm -hmm. but you're changing your thoughts and you're thinking about your hands heating up and holding them over a campfire. And you're thinking about warm fluids, like running down your arms into your fingertips. And I've been doing it for so long now that even just talking about it makes it happen, Mm -hmm. but there's no denying it with biofeedback because you're getting feedback about your biological systems and as you're thinking these thoughts and imagining these images, your hand temperature is slowly going up. It's just wild. So, so the things you think are connected to the things you feel 100% of the time. And biofeedback is a great way of proving that to people. Mm-hmm. And he also, to prove it to me, had me think about really stressful things and really stressful thoughts. And my hand temperature plummeted and my muscle tension went up and my pain got worse. So there's just sort of no, no separating the two. But for some reason in Western medicine, we separate the thoughts and emotions are over here in psychology and the body's over here in medicine. But like, that's not how that
0: goes. Yeah. Wow. And what's so incredible about that is if you think about for the most part, why people avoid therapy is because they don't want to talk about these traumatic incidences, right? They want to kind of stay away from that, uh, from that kind of area. So would you say then for somebody who is a little bit skeptical of it, or at least hesitant of it, that for them, biofeedback would be a great kind of avenue, you know, I guess uh, first start.
1: Definitely. I love biofeedback. It's awesome.
0: <laughs> That's so cool. Wow. Okay. And then, so also before we go, I really wanted to touch on the anecdotes. So you write about the tale of two nails. Can you tell us about them?
1: Yeah, um, so the Tale of Two Nails came to be because I was trying to find a way to highlight this concept that things that hurt aren't necessarily harmful, that there's this, different, this, there's this distinction between hurt and harm. So hurt is pain and that's subjective and absolutely real and everyone experiences it to different degrees depending on context and all the things we talked about. And then there's harm, which is like undeniable damage to the body, right? Like a broken bone or like a bloody wound or a disease process, right? There's like, so um, the tale of two nails is our two stories from the clinical literature. Um, they're both construction workers. Do you want me to tell the stories? Yeah, please. Okay. So the you're first, happy
0: obviously if you feel like it's too long, but yeah, they're really interesting.
1: It is really interesting. And I think it actually is too long. I'm sorry. Is that Okay.
0: Yeah, it's okay. So, just but like, kind of the gist of it essentially is, is that like there was this construction worker, right, and who kind of shot a nail gun through his boot, and then he thought he was in severe pain, and then after a while, they kind of figured out that oh, wow, actually, you know, you the nail never actually hit your toe, or you didn't hit your foot. So yeah. the question there is right, how is that possible? How is it possible that a person can actually perceive to be in pain, right, in some sense, but then actually not be in pain, or at least, or at least at the very least, the uh, kind of the body interprets pain where there is not. But just in general, I feel like it's really amazing that stuff like that happens. And I mean, is that something that you kind of see with sometimes? I mean, I mean, obviously, you're not going to see a person like put a nail through, you know, have a nail put through the boot or whatnot. Um, but do you ever kind of see that with your patients too sometimes where they kind of, um, like, where they, let's say they've experienced pain in the way where, let's say they even went to a doctor and there was nothing that could be found, right? There was no, like when we're talking about somatic pain, right? How often do you see that?
1: Um, I feel like a lot of the people who end up coming to me are coming to me because the doctors haven't given them a sufficient answer or the doctors have said like, we don't know what's causing this or the medications aren't working. Or, so I see that a lot where there's like not a great answer for like why the pain is happening. And surely there's not a great solution. Like no one comes to my office if they've found a solution to their pain, you know? Um, so I see
0: it a lot. Yeah, so incredible. All right. So if there was like, let's say one big takeaway that you would have, uh, let's say, you know, your audience or the people reading your book have, what would that be?
1: The one big takeaway I would say is in order to effectively treat pain, we have to target the brain in addition to the body. And we have to target the brain in a way where we're not just throwing pills and procedures at people with pain, but we're also delivering psychosocial treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy or biofeedback or you know, PT and OT, but all of these things together, that's actually the treatment for pain. It's not gonna work to exclusively just throw pills and procedures at it for a chronic pain condition. It's just not gonna work.
0: And I really love the fact that your book is highly accessible. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? You want it to be, yep, you want it to be not only for clinicians, but for people, just, yeah. you know, regular people kind of day-to-day, you know, using it for their day-to-day lives. And so, yeah. I that, you know, in particular, if you're somebody who's kind of hesitant about therapy or somebody who kind of wonders, you know, I don't really, like, what would it be like? Or I don't really want to go to a person and open up about my struggles. You know, I just don't feel comfortable with it. It's kind of a great resource for them.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing about cognitive behavioral therapy for pain is like, you, you actually don't necessarily have to talk about all the things you just need to know that those things are amplifying your pain and be willing to do something about it. Again, like toxic relationships or any form of abuse or, you know, um, not having good access to care. Like there's a million things that affect pain, like being depressed, being anxious. So like in order to target pain, we have to target all of those things. So it's okay to not want to talk about it, but we have to at least treat it in, in some way. Like we have to target it in some way, you know?
0: I love that. Okay. And then, so if we were to find you and follow you online, where would that be?
1: Yeah. So I have a really dorky website. It's just Mm -hmm. my last name. It's zofness.com. I joined social media during the pandemic because I wanted to connect with people and I was so isolated. It was miserable. Um, So on Twitter I'm at Dr. Zofness um, and I tweet a lot about like pain stuff and like um, nerdy science stuff because I think it's fascinating uh, and on Instagram, I'm at the real docs off because I got nervous and I couldn't think of a better handle.
0: Well, I love your Twitter. It's one of my favorite Twitter feeds to follow.
1: Oh, thank you. Nice Absolutely. compliment.
0: Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks for inviting me.